These bodies were hidden, and along with the bodies, bodies of evidence were hidden. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hello and welcome to this live edition of the Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie van der Berg. And together we produce a podcast for you on international justice. And that's accountability, courts, you know, truth commissions, prosecutions, lots more. Uh, things that happen in conflict like war crimes. And we like to have female commentators just to balance up a bit because we hear a lot of male voices and we like to balance that out a bit. And also in introduction, we would like to give a shout out to the Hague Humanity Hub, where we're proud members and the city of The Hague, where I'm a proud citizen and Stephanie happens to do a lot of work. And they're supporting this podcast with you over Zoom as part of their week of the Peace and Justice Network in The Hague. That's all the NGOs and international organisations who work in this area. And we have people on this call from all over the world. So welcome to you. And joining us today on the Zoom podcast are two great women. We have Catherine Bomberger. Catherine, are you there? Here. Hi. <laughs> Catherine is the Director General of the ICMP, the International Commission on Missing Persons. She's helped transform it from an ad hoc mechanism to a treaty-based organization and uh, one of the big uh, caps, uh, plume, how do you say it, feathers in their caps, is that they helped identify more than 70% of the estimated 40,000 people who went missing following the wars in the former Yugoslavia. And we have Agnes Kalama. Hi, Agnes. Hello. Agnes has several hats. She's director of the Columbia University Global Freedom of Expression Project, but she's also the special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions appointed by the United Nations Human Rights Council. They're both joining us to talk about mass graves and how we investigate them. We'll put links in the podcast show notes to the work that Agnes and the ICMP and their academic partners have been doing in this area. A small point before we start, we want to hear from you. We will be asking a few questions ourselves and then we'll open the floor. Before we start, I just wanted to say this is very delicate. You know, it's quite a tough subject. It's about an ultimate human indignity. In all societies, we have rituals, we have ways of saying goodbye to the remains of our dead. A mass grave is an awful thing. We're conscious that there may be people listening or taking part in the Zoom for whom this is a very real thing. Uh, maybe it's a partner, member of the family, a near victim, an investigator. We don't want to not acknowledge that. But we will be talking about technicalities, about responsibilities, about mechanisms. It might sound a bit cold. Sorry. We mean no disrespect, and we acknowledge that this is a very tough subject. That said, let's get going. Why are we talking about mass graves at all? Surely, maybe it's a thing of the past. We all remember Rwanda and Bosnia. But do we still have a lot of mass graves now, Agnes? Yes, absolutely. We have um, thousands um, of mass graves around the world. And, um, you know, if you look back at our history, at the history of our humanity, then we're counting millions of uh, mass graves. I like to cite there the expert Adam Rosenblatt, who wrote that um, mass graves are so widespread and so numerous that stretching across the entire planet's surface, they form an underground map of atrocity. The oldest mass grave is uh, dating back to 10,000 years ago, while 20th century mass graves have left millions of bodies in, uh, in their wake. It is feared that, and you know, the numbers are very approximative, that we probably can have about um, more than 30,000 people that are in mass graves. The mass graves from the Holocaust have not all been un uncovered and they are scattered across Europe. Just yesterday, I was in communication with Mexican civil society who were telling me about mass graves in relation to the cartels and drug wars that they are trying to uncover. As I was writing my report on mass grave for the United Nations, Rwanda 
uncovered a new mass grave and they were estimating that there could be as much as 20,000 bodies in that particular mass grave. So, you know, they are everywhere around us. And what is the, uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about a mass grave, uh, Catherine? What is the technical definition of a mass grave? Are we talking more than two bodies? Are we talking upwards of five well, they really are. Thank you, Agnes. And that's a great explanation. They really are clandestine graves. I mean, there are graves that, uh, I mean, that contain the mortal remains of individuals that were abducted, that were executed uh, and buried in clandestine graves. So I think it's not really the number, although they're, as Agnes said, they can be quite big. But it's the fact that these bodies were hidden and along with the bodies, bodies of evidence were hidden. So one can really look at them as crime scenes. And when you're looking at conflict-related mass grave sites uh, or cases of enforced disappearance or other human rights abuses, um, you are looking at war crimes, crimes against humanity and other atrocities. So they really are crime scenes. What I'm wondering now is who's actually responsible at the moment for investigating these things. I mean, I'm kind of assuming if they're a crime scene, then we must be talking about police states in some way. But I also think about people, you know, finding them themselves. So who's actually responsible? Well, states, in fact, are responsible. Governments are responsible for locating missing persons cases, for uh, conducting proper investigations into mass grave sites. The problem is often states themselves or, or parties acting on behalf of the state were responsible for creating these mass graves or disappearing people. So trying to ensure the state takes responsibility uh, means number one, ensuring that they have the, they exhibit the political will to do so. And then secondly, building the mechanisms of good governance to allow them to do so in line with the rule of law. But that therein lies the challenge. And Agnes, when we, when we go back to you, um, we have this new uh, protocol what could be improved on the way that mass graves are investigated now as a general rule? You know, I, I approach mass grave in a slightly different uh, fashion, personally. Absolutely, they are crime scenes, but they are much more than crime scenes. Or much, you know, it, it's not that crime scenes are not a top things, but they are, they are places where people know that their loved ones are buried. They are places with enormous meaning and signification above and beyond the criminal positivist meaning that we wish to attribute to mass grave. The reason why I started investigating the, the question of mass grave is when I was in Iraq, I encountered a range of people, including high-level officials who told me that they were going to mass graves and they were picking up bones for because they needed they needed something in relation to their loved ones who had been killed they knew that they are suspected that they are being killed at, at this location of course they didn't know that the bones they had picked were those of their loved ones and when I called on the on a very high level officials to protect the mass grave, to ensure that they, you know, that they were exactly like you said, that they were protected because they were crime scene, he actually responded in a in a very interesting way. And he said, look, you know, we want to investigate the crimes more than anyone else, particularly the crimes committed by uh, the terrorist uh, group called ISIS. But we also need to recognize that people need a place and need to hold on to their cultural rights, to their religious rights, that they need to have a relationship with the place that a crime scene investigation is unlikely to deliver. So what I highlighted in my own report is that while there is no doubt that investigation remain the most important objective, it is an objective that must be put into a bigger context and balanced out with other needs, other demands, and other forms of investigations which may not require for a mass grave to be disturbed or excavated. 
Catherine, can I ask you then, um, you, ICMP has a huge amount of experience in the practical business there. How, how do you balance those different demands? Well, I think the first thing is, I mean, not to negate what Agnes has said, but what often happens is there is a double standard, unfortunately. Uh, and we can see that today in Europe um, and in the West in general, where uh, a proper investigation into, let's say, a missing person's case will be conducted if you're white, if you're European. However, the Mediterranean today has turned into a mass grave. Europe now has the largest number of dead and missing migrants in the world. Um, and a different standard is used to address those issues, uh, one that really is led by humanitarian organizations. But I think the key here is that states do have a responsibility to excavate these sites. They are on sovereign territory, but they also have a responsibility to secure the rights of living, surviving families of the missing. This is critical for them because most of those who are missing tend to be men, meaning though the majority of those whose rights you're trying to secure are women. So trying to ensure that their rights are secured, including justice, including the truth about what happened, including an honest reckoning of the crimes that were committed are critical to societies moving on. In fact, mass graves are wounds in the earth's crust. There's no question about that. But being able to find them, to properly excavate them, to restore the rights of surviving families of the missing is not universally accepted. And I think that's what we're trying to do to ensure that there are standards and that all families of the missing, regardless of where they are, regardless of their national origin, their religion, uh, sex, etc., um, have the same rights. And, and that's the challenge in today's world. And when you um, investigate these uh, mass graves, uh, you have, or the ICMP has a very long history of experience in this. I've seen the pictures from Bosnia where I know everybody is kind of dug up. Are there also, are you working on new, less invasive, possibly quicker techniques? And can you share some of the technology in that sense that you're working on? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in the context of the former Yugoslavia, we assisted the governments in excavating over 3,000 mass grave sites. Uh, so th this is huge. And it's very, and this, of course, exceeded the domestic capability of any one of these states to conduct excavations at that level um, or that many and at a level where evidence could be provided to international courts, which it eventually was, which is critical. So the number of forensic pathologists, uh, prosecutors, investigative judges uh, that are necessary to excavate sites, uh, that many sites and at that level is huge. You also need forensic archaeologists, anthropologists that can provide support because the types of mass graves uh, that we found, and we have a long list of different ways that uh, people have horrifically and deviously tried to uh, suppress uh, you know, information about missing persons cases is just nauseating. So yeah, using new technologies is important to help them locate mass grave sites. Witness information is critical. Uh, LIDAR, um, aerial imagery is very important. But the most important is witness information and political will on the part of the state to find everyone equally, regardless of the circumstances of their disappearance. Then you link that to DNA-based identification technologies, where you can link the identity of that person back to the crime scene. So that becomes important and part of telling the story, not only of the crimes committed, but helping families who desperately want to understand what happened to their loved ones uh, through a process of truth telling, uh, reveal that process. I'd like to turn now to some of the um, different writing that we've uh, had, these two different reports, these, these different publications we've had. Agnes, you have written for the Human Rights Council and for states to say, they need to think about this this more. There's also been uh, what's called the Bournemouth Protocol, and we should shout out to the academics involved in that, uh, Dr. Melanie Klinkner and Dr. Ellie Smith. And I know, Agnes, you also provided a uh, forward to that. I, I want to ask you, Agnes, is this kind of a movement that's going on now? Well, what, why is it that we're, that, that we're thinking about this at this, this point? No, 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 no. Look, you know, the situation in Iraq, thousands of mass graves, with the current level of resources and expertise, including from outside Iraq, it will take 800 years to handle the current mass graves. 800 years. 
Mass grave in the Holocaust, from the Holocaust, like I said, there are at least 1,000 that have not been handled. Mass grave in Rwanda, they have not, very, for the most of them, have not been excavated. Mass grave of Cambodia have not been excavated, but, but victims have been identified. They have been identified through other ways than through the excavation process, which is extremely resource intensive and um, expert intensive. So there is a huge gap. In fact, one of the largest gap I've ever encountered as a human rights person between what we are seeking, what the principles are, and what the reality on the ground is. I mean, a huge, a huge gap. That what compelled me to do this report, because I, you know, in the current, with the current level of technology, even, you know, and I'm hoping it is going to develop further, it is just not going to happen that the vast majority of, of mass graves are going to be handled, excavated, investigated in the way that they should. So what do we do with that situation while, you know, we plan for that to happen? How do we as an international community handle that situation? How do we plan for the treatment of mass grave in Yemen, for the treatment of mass grave in Syria? You know, there are nothing in the international peace agreement at the moment that refers to mass grave. What is being referred to are different legal and policy framework. The one on investigation is uh, the most important one. The one on the missing is another one. And what I have said in my report is that in my view, while they are important, they are just part and parcel of what mass graves are. And that we as an international community need not only to invest far more resources at a political policy level, far more goodwill and determination on the part of the state, we also need to think conceptually about the mass grave in ways that take into account the multiple dimension of the mass grave, which is, you know, it, it's, it's a crime scene, it's a site of missing people, it's uh, a site of uh, crimes, very massive human rights violations. It's a place as well for cultural right, for religious right. It's a place where the last rights, RITS, must be acknowledged. It's a place for memory. And memor memorialization, in my view, is an absolute central part of truth-telling and of um, accountability. So what I try to do with this, in this report is to encourage us all to think about developing a conceptual policy legal framework that takes into account all of the dimensions of the mass grave and that then develop policy recommendations so that we can match the needs with uh, the resources and the commitment. And let me just add one more point. I did a lot of research to find out how much Masgrave played a key role in the search uh, in criminal justice. And in fact, what I found out is that with a few exceptions, it is not the case that evidence from Masgrave is essential for criminal investigation to be pursued. Croatia is the case that we should all seek to emulate, but Croatia is the exception. Largely, it is the exception. Rwanda, Cambodia, you know, there have been processes towards truth-telling, towards reckoning with the massive uh, violations, the genocide that took place. This was not based on excavation. Maybe it would have been done better with excavation, I don't know. But I think we need to acknowledge the fact that there is a big, I mean, a huge gap between what we should try to do and the reality. 
Well, as somebody who sat through a lot of um, war crimes cases for the former Yugoslavia, you say Croatia is the is the absolute example. And I also think the Bosnia is, and I remember sitting through trials at the ICTY and seeing the pictures from the mass graves, especially Srebrenica, where they show the wire that was used to keep the, they show the blindfolds, all these things come very technically from mass graves. So I know for the ICTY, it has a huge impact. And then if we look at the kind of more practical application uh, of um uncovering mass graves, and we look at the Bournemouth Protocol. Catherine, can you explain a bit for us how important it is for the ICMP to have this protocol and to try and have a unified way of approaching how you excavate mass graves? Absolutely. And I first want to give thanks to Melanie Klinker, who's here, uh, who took the lead with Bournemouth University in putting together this report. Uh, and it's fantastic that it's done and it's going to be um, translated into multiple languages. And I see Carolyn Horn and other people that participated in creating this particular guidebook. It's absolutely essential uh, because as governments um, exhibit the political will, they often don't know how to deal with this issue. So, you know, exhibiting the political will to ensure that these mass graves are excavated is the first step building the institutions. I mean, we've worked in Iraq for 10 years. We have a program in Syria. We have a program in Colombia uh, trying to build the mechanisms of good governance to bring institutions together that are required uh, because it involves the ministries of health, justice, medical legal institutes, foreign affairs. So this book, uh, this protocol rather, provides you know, a map for states now that are interested in beginning a process of searching for missing persons to understand what the mechanisms are to properly excavate a mass grave site. And that's key. And you know, any government reading this or any family of the missing looking at this, because I think multiple audiences will benefit from this protocol, will understand what the process looks like. And the more families of the missing are educated or those that have lost individuals are educated about what the process can look like, they can advocate for their rights and they can advocate for what they want. And states can also understand how to link the various components of that ex excavation to the institutions that would be responsible for this process. So I really want to commend Melanie um, and her colleagues in Bournemouth University for putting this together. And, you know, I hope that it will be widely read. We are talking about how um, it's hard for states to kind of uh, do things. And, and we've talked about that people try to start excavating themselves, their own loved ones, because states are not doing enough. How could you get states to do more? Where is the big problem in? Is it the inexperience, as Catherine said? Is it the unwillingness to uncover sites that might not be... I don't know, politically uh, useful for them. Agnes, when you look at why states are kind of dragging behind excavating mass graves and trying to identify the people in them, what are the, the causes that you see? Well, all of them that you just mentioned, lack of goodwill, politicization of post-war and post-conflict situation, unwillingness to turn back, to turn to the past, censorship of the past event. I mean, it's a mixture of things. Sometimes society itself is not uh, pushing for excavation. I mean, the situation, uh, a, a very interesting case of mass grave is, um, is a mass grave from Spain, for instance, uh, from, the, uh, from the Franco era. And um, how long it has taken for, in fact, family members themselves and civil society to take on the role of the state, not only against the state eventually, but also against the own, um, the trend within their own society. Uh, so, you know, originally there was, of course, it was impossible to excavate the, the Franco mass grave, but then there be a, a form of self-censorship settled in on the society. And it's only, you know, over the last 10 years that um, children and grandchildren of the victims have said, no, we want everything to be known. We want to know where they are. We want to excavate them. And they are doing the excavation. So it is really a, um, a mixture of things. I've said in, you know, in Cambodia and in Rwanda, the lack of excavation did not necessarily mean lack of reckoning. 
because there was process of judicial process of, of truth-telling and of holding to account those that were responsible. There are also places where governments, for a variety of reasons, sometimes with the people, sometimes against the people, are going to look for alternative ways of finding the truth that do not require excavating thousands of mass graves. So, you know, there are many, many reasons. Lack of goodwill, I will say, and determination to hide the truth, uh, not caring, is certainly a primary factor. I wanted to turn to one of the current issues. I'm thinking about the deaths in the Mediterranean, Catherine. Uh, you have these large numbers of migrants coming across from various places in North Africa, particularly. And we hear regularly of boats foundering, of people ending up on the bottom of the ocean. Is that a mass grave? I, I think I remember the ICMP is getting involved in that area. How are you treating that? Is that a mass grave for you? Let me find two ways of responding to this. Thank you, Janet. I, I, just getting back to what Stephanie said earlier about states uh, and the political will. I mean, the world really changed during the 1990s uh, when it comes to addressing this issue. Uh, there was really a historical shift in ensuring that states take responsibility and that perpetrators are held to account. And you can see this through the creation of ICTY, its counterpart for Rwanda, the creation of the ICC in 1998, and even the creation of ICMP in 1996, where our mandate is to ensure the cooperation of governments and others in locating missing persons cases. And I think conflicts that happened earlier, especially in Latin America, and Agnes uh, re referred to Spain, things that are Lebanon, you know, conflicts that took place earlier, were not subject to the same type of international community approach. Uh, so what we're seeing today um, in terms of what happened in the Western Balkans, uh, what's happening in Iraq today uh, with the creation of UNITAD, for example, uh, what's happening uh, with uh, Syria and the creation of the triple IM or the double IM for um, uh, Myanmar are, are very new ways of dealing with a very old issue um, to the extent that they're dealing with mass graves. So applying new technologies, but also applying a rule of law approach is very new, uh, ensuring that states take that responsibility. So there is a gap. I mean, Cambodia, for example, yes, hasn't found you know many people. It's not been part of the process. So really, we're defining something that's very new. And of course, it's ironic now turning to, to Europe. Uh, Spain was also providing support to countries like Bosnia-Herzegovina, and often the question uh, would come to Spain, but why aren't you doing anything about your own cases and you're providing support to Bosnia-Herzegovina or European states providing support to the Western Balkans, where now they have an increasing uh, big missing persons uh, problem on, in their own backyard. And of course, I think this has to do with understanding, you know, again, dealing with your own cases uh, and the political dynamics and the truth-telling dynamics that are in involved in that and the difficulty of addressing these issues. And then when the state doesn't, it's left to families of the missing and other to with their bare hands, like for example, in Mexico, to conducting this work. I have not, I mean, others have also called the, the, the Mediterranean situation a mass grave. Um, and, and here there is, you know, an equivalent metaphor. Um, and somebody from Human Rights Watch, I think, did a very good article recently about uh, I Can't Breathe. Uh, about a Somalian, um, you know, ship, I mean, a ship that had been wrecked and, and uh, went down in the Mediterranean with you know, primarily um, Somalian uh, migrants on it uh, who are drowning, um, who can't breathe. So increasingly, this is becoming a problem. But I think it's just a metaphor to recognize the large number of missing persons now and the fact that proper investigations into their disappearances are not happening and that there is a double standard. So even though there's been a historical shift since the 1990s, it is not widely accepted throughout the world, but it is important that states take that responsibility. It doesn't negate, uh, in, in fact, it enhances truth-telling. Uh, it enhances um, uh, securing those rights for families and allowing them to memorialize missing persons cases. And I would like one day for the controversy regarding Srebrenica to end, for example, uh, that this, we have scientific proof about what happened there. Um, we helped uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, find 
almost 90% of the 8,000 Muslim men and boys that were killed uh, in 1995 uh, as part of a genocide. But now memorializing that, removing, um, having an honest reckoning uh, with what happened is important, not just for the victims, but for all of us as humanity to recognize the atrocities that, found, that uh, countries can commit in the name of nationalism. We had, uh, Janet and I, perceived a question about balancing the rights of different people in uh, mass grave exhumation. And we had a mirrored question from Christian van Eyck, who was talking about uh, mass graves as a potential crime scene, but also issues treated as privacy and family life issues. And he asks, do mass graves require new ways of conceiving of human rights and the dead? And more specifically, could either of the speakers speak on the right to commemoration or reburial under more fundamental rights like the freedom from cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment? I, I um, you know, that's that's exactly my point of the point of departure of of my report, which is the mass grave are the embodiment of so many different issues. We need to we we need to challenge ourselves to develop a more a richer understanding of the human rights that are contained in the mass grave and the rights in relation to religion, in relation to culture, in relation to death are extremely important. And I'm highlighting those rights not because I think they are more important than the right to truth, but because they are part of the right to truth and that Communities who want truth, they also want their dead to be treated in a certain way. Uh, they also have, um, uh, they should at least have a say in determining the fate of a mass grave, determining how they want a reburial to take place, how an excavation to take place. So I, you know, it, it, I completely agree with, with uh, the, the spirit of the question and I believe that within the existing, at least European jurisprudence, we have a very good legal reasoning and policy reasoning of balancing of rights, which I will wish to see more applied proactively to, to the mass grave. And if I may just add something in relation to the migrants, because I actually wrote two reports uh, as a special rapporteur uh, on the migrants uh, and the killings and disappearance of the mi migrants, including in the, in the Mediterranean. I personally have treated and continue to treat the Mediterranean as a mass grave. I continue to see the bodies lying at the bottom of the, of the water as uh, bodies in need of uh, humanity, in need of of us giving them humanity because they have an intrinsic humanity and that can only be done through searching and at least giving them a, a decent burial while the process of identification take place. But to me, the, the migrants issue and the mass grave at the bottom of the Mediterranean is first and foremost uh, a call to us for protection because this is happening in front of our very eyes. You can probably argue that some of those mass killings around the world are not something that the world could take immediate action to prevent. We can discuss that. But the death, the unlawful death of the migrants at sea, there is absolutely no legal, no policy, no practical reason as to why we are not preventing those deaths. And yet, this is exactly what we are doing. So that's why for me, it's, you know, it's really important to highlight how we have completely lost our humanity when confronted with migration. Catherine, did you want to add something or? Yeah, I know. I would just add, I absolutely agree. Um, and not only allowing the deaths, but also not engaging in proper investigations. Um, you know, there are now, you know, we've heard up to 10,000 children missing in Europe. 
so these persons are missing as a consequence of you know migration, but child trafficking, child slavery. But just to go back to, to Stephanie's point regarding family life and so on, I mean, just to give you an anecdotal account of what happened um, in the case of Srebrenica and dealing also uh, with the needs of family uh, to to find out the truth. Um, you know, we were excavating so many sites. We were helping the states, uh, you know, involved doing this. But what became clear, you know, after the first excavations, it's that the perpetrators had gone back to the original mass grave sites, um, you know, following these executions. And after the war ended, they removed the bodies from primary sites to multiple secondary sites. So the families, I mean, the bodies could never be found again. Uh, and the horror of this became very clear as we continued with these excavations. And this is where DNA, we started using DNA because of this, because there was no other way to identify these bodies. Now, the families always wanted the, the, their sons and husbands back the way they last saw them. Uh, and what they were getting, in fact, uh, were pieces of bodies as the excavations took place and as DNA was able to identify body parts. So they wanted to know also spiritually, at what point do we bury this person and in line with Islamic traditions. So we went you know, to the, the local imam, we had conversations with them, at what point could they bury them? And a fatwa was issued initially, advising them to wait till at least 70% of the body was found. And this became challenging, of course, because you never knew when you would find additional parts of the body. So there, this is a form of mental torture for families of the missing, um, to hide them this extensively, for somebody to know where they are, to deliberately withhold this information is understood uh, to be a form of mental torture. And of course, the families of the missing from different cultures, from different religions, uh, tra different traditions, need guidance um, in this process from, from where they are. So. Yeah, as the state conducts its investigation, because that is, you know, to ensure that perpetrators are held to account, there is no doubt, absolutely, that the families of the missing and how one treats the process is critical. Also, once you find them, how do you notify the families? Um, I mean, this can also be a brutal process I've seen, you know, where uh, information, for example, is put on a, a website uh, before information is directly provided to the families. So, you know, having, when I talk about states, I mean, states, you know, these states do hold these mass graves. Uh, they have, they hold them. I mean, they're there. So I see Qu Carla Quintana is here. I mean, recently Mexico, for example, created, implemented legislation on missing persons and created a commission on missing persons. And these commissions, even though they exist, have a very difficult time in coordinating a process on a domestic level to find them on the one hand, and then dealing with hundreds of thousands of families who are at breaking point, um, who have been waiting a long, long time uh, to find a missing relative, but they also do want justice. And I think this is the mistake we make. Um, families of the missing want many, many things because we are all different as individuals, uh, but they want justice. Of course, they want the truth. They want multiple things. But what has happened, I think, in the years that I've been doing this, which is 25 years, and I think largely because the majority of missing are men and the majority of those left behind are women, we've often thought that they don't want justice. So this has been an enormous mistake uh, that has to be rectified uh, in the way we address these mass grave sites. This is probably why I'm insisting um, that these investigations are done uh, properly in line with the rule of law. But just to go back to Agnes's point, no, not all, I mean, to, to, to collect evidence for criminal trial purposes, you don't have to go through every single mass grave, but the state itself must demonstrate a goodwill effort to try to find everyone. And there, you know, what, at what point, what defines success? In the case of Iraq, absolutely you're not going to find everyone. I mean, people are missing from the regime of Saddam Hussein, the war with Iran, the first Gulf War, Daesh crimes. Mexico is also huge. There are migrants and then Mexicans missing. It's, it's extremely challenging. But, but the families of the missing need to, to see a good faith effort on the part of the state that explains the process to them, where they, they are treated with respect and where they see that their rights are being protected. We've got a flood of questions coming in. It always happens as you're uh, sort of three quarters of the way through an event. So a quick one, if possible, Catherine, uh, from Eva Vukasic, just referring back to the Mediterranean issue. 
Uh, what are the practical challenges of trying to find and identify bodies? She knows a lot about the Srebrenica technicalities, but what, what, what are the challenges with the Mediterranean? Yeah, well, one challenge is now Italy has retrieved as many bodies as there are missing from Srebrenica. So that's number one. So we're already dealing with an enormous challenge in the context of Europe. And, and Europe has not had a missing persons problem on this scale since the Balkans War, since World War II. So this is an enormous challenge. The first thing is each one of the states, because they haven't had this challenge ever, they have to build again the capacities to be able to address this issue. What tends to happen is you have multiple ministries, the maritime ministries, justice ministry. So ensuring that within states there's a task force or equivalent that can search for missing persons. Then, because families have been separated, um, in some cases Syrian families, for example, the mother, the father, the children are you know separate locations on a Greek island or somewhere else. So ensuring cooperations between cooperation between multiple states in the Mediterranean is absolutely critical, and that's not happening. So we have put together a joint process of states that now works together to share information because they're not sharing information. So if if Greece is finding has in its custody a child who needs to find its parents who may be in Spain or France, there is no mechanism currently to share information. So I think you know, ensuring that these mechanisms are put into place and, and this issue is not outsourced to the Vatican or humanitarian organizations that cannot possibly uh, take on a challenge like this and shouldn't because it's a rule of law issue. And, and here, if they do that, then they're engaged in a double standard uh, that doesn't allow for proper investigations and undermines our de democracies in the longer term. So the starting point is, is taking this seriously and ensuring that the resources and cooperation between states exist. Agnes, anything to add on that, on, uh, on how they should be investigating in the Mediterranean? Well, look, the situation is extraordinarily complex when it comes to, um, first of all, finding the bodies at the bottom of the sea. So there, the, the technicality of it is very difficult. Uh, many of uh, the bodies are in a state where identification is going to be a, a, a very difficult process. The, uh, the forensic experts that do the work rely on whatever is left of clothes, for instance, and indeed on DNA. But the DNA is meaningless unless you have a bank, you know, a DNA bank you can compare the DNA of the mi missing migrant with. Many of those migrants are, you know, it's difficult to identify which country of West Africa or North Africa they are coming from, or indeed Syria. There is no database of DNA from the countries or, you know, possible countries of origin against which the DNA of the body that has been found can be, uh, can be compared and can be matched. In, in my report, I said, you know, the only way we can tackle that is through a, a real global uh, process of scientific DNA uh, banking system that can be shared. That in turn raises huge policing, private data, personal data questions, all of that to say it's not impossible. The international community, when it comes together, can tackle very large problems. But there is no will at international level to look for the creation of principles and data banks that would allow the collection of um, DNA on a systematic basis in Nigeria, in Senegal, and so on, hold the holding of those data in a way that is safe and secure, that is not there yet. And I'm not even going to get into the next step, which is even without identification, where do we, do we create a sense that this is our common task, uh, that this should be something to which humanity together is prepared to remember, is prepared to hold a tribute to those migrants. That is not happening at all, except at local level driven by local people. There is no sense globally that we are confronting a crime against humanity on a global scale, because that's how I've 
decided to call it in my own report. So I'm not saying that we should not do anything. The absolute contrary. I just want people to understand the complexity of the issue that we are confronting. So where do we go from there? Well, first of all, we acknowledge the effort by many Italian local communities, you know, because I, when I did my, my mission there, I was very impressed, not by the state, you know, not by what happened at governmental, at the executive level, what happened at the level of the people that welcomed or that had to carry the bodies, what happened at the level of the cities, what happened at the level of the little ladies that goes to the cemetery and put flowers on the on the tomb of the missing of the migrants. That's where I found the energy to be human and the search for our humanity while other processes are ongoing. And I think we need to encourage that. We need to value that. We need to celebrate when that happens. Thank you, Agnes. We are going to go to another question next from uh, somebody identified as MK. And he has, uh, he or she has a question regarding prosecutions relating to mass graves. And they say, if we look at the ICTY, the evidence coming from mass graves was crucial for proving a number of crimes, but we haven't seen prosecutions of the act itself of hiding the bodies. I'm going to kind of jump in here and be my geeky self with the ICTY. In the Jokic case, in a case that uh, followed one of the Srebrenica cases, the campaign of hiding the bodies was very, very central, and it was mentioned, and they were convicted for that, specifically for that whole reburial for uh, secondary to tertiary to quartary mass graves. And personally, that is one of the reasons also that Catherine was explaining that they find so little bodies and the kind of torture that is. And I've sat with mothers of Srebrenica who've told me you know, on their coffee table that the, only the three uh, finger bones of one of the, her sons was returned and she couldn't bury him because she was waiting for more bones to come. But that's that's the personal experience of the kind of impact this has that you have so many mass graves and people are hiding this. The question is very specifically, are there more prosecutions maybe in other countries or in other contexts of people accused of hiding bodies? and making identification more difficult. Uh, I think I will hand it over to Catherine in first instance. Yeah, no, thank you, Stephanie. And, and this, this ties in, that question ties into what Agnes said earlier about having centralized data uh, repositories. And in fact, having you know, using DNA, using evidence coming from a mass grave site, it's an integrated scientific effort uh, that includes data collected from the mass grave, you know, including from forensic archaeologists, anthropologists, the DNA where you're able to link the crime scene back to the identity. In the case of Srebrenica, and under you know, revealing the secondary crime, all of those methods were absolutely key to demonstrate that there was a secondary crime of a cover-up. So just to underscore that, um, and in the context of the Mediterranean, this is exactly what we're trying to do, or in Syria, for example, there has to be a centralized database that not only holds DNA, it has to hold all evidence uh, related to the investigation into a, a, a mass you know, grave or a crime scene or missing persons cases. Same thing with the USA Today. Uh, and, and thank God uh, Biden has issued an executive order just the other day to create an interagency task force now to deal with the issue of separated uh, children that have been separated from their families. I mean, this will require collecting data, again, from multiple countries of origin, same thing with Europe, collecting data from multiple countries of origin if you calculate that people are coming from 85 different countries to find their missing uh, you know, relatives um, and to deal uh, with these crimes. So yeah, there we had provided evidence in, in at least 30 uh, different tribunals, uh, many of them linked to the former Yugoslavia. I mean, on the horizon right now, it's, it's kind of bleak, I have to say. Um, and I think this has to do with the fact that, you know, what happened in the 1990s is kind of in a downward spiral, spiral um, unfortunately, at the moment. And the international community that existed at that time and the willingness to create these courts 
and to uh, strengthen the work of the ICC is not there at the moment. So we're seeing more hybrid situations growing, um, including, you know, UNITAD investigations and the IIIM, you know, and of course there are these universal justice mechanisms that are absolutely crucial uh, for Syria at the moment. But this really needs to step up. So I think while you know that at the moment is you know on shaky ground, all the more reason right now to ensure that these crime mass graves are properly excavated to a level where evidence can be provided. Uh, because if you don't do that, if you don't leave the door open for accountability in the context of Syria, Colombia, Mexico, um, and you engage in a process that doesn't do that, you will never have that evidence if there is a moment when these cases can go to court. So, you know, proper, proper documentation using advanced scientific means, which, by the way, are, are less expensive. This is not the Cadillac version of anything. I mean, we maintain a standing capacity to help countries uh, with this process. Uh, there are ways to uh, diminish uh, the cost to states. Uh, so I think that this requires a lot of thinking. But where I really agree with Agnes is this is a global challenge. Every single country in the world is faced with this challenge. And we must recognize as, as uh, you know, the international community uh, that this is a very key issue to ensuring peace and stability. So excavating mass grave sites is a direct link. Uncovering these crimes is a direct link to dealing with the past uh, untangling the political manipulation by using these mass graves as sites of hatred of the current situation or current you know, countries that are using this issue for political ends uh, and inciting violence on the back of these mass graves. So ensuring that persons are accounted for, uh, that these cases are properly dealt with, is an investment in peace and stability. And I think that is the key message. You both keep on coming out with stuff that I think, yes, you know, we could end the podcast here and we just, you know, that would just round it all off. But then I keep on getting questions in from people. So I'm going to keep going, if that's OK with you. There's one here from uh, Selin Orek, which is about practicalities uh, of being an investigator. He's he or she, I think it's a he, I'm not sure, recently got a job as an investigator and witnesses keep dying. That's one thing that's happening. And people don't want to give information when it's about someone from another affiliation, another community, and they don't want to give uh, information. And that wondering whether either of you have some experience, some tips about how to obtain investigation leads, how, how to find out about things like mass graves. And yes, I know you have a lot of practical experience of uh, human rights work in your past. Maybe you could start look for other witnesses. I mean, you know, it's very unlikely that a mass grave uh, doesn't have, um, you know, either through scientific uh, tools, and Catherine Ware was talking about a large number of mass graves are found uh, using uh, satellite and other imagery, and witnesses, you know, witnesses are likely at some point or another to, to report, even a mass grave or one or two, um, one or two person. Catherine, do you have uh, any uh, tips um, of new and different ways of obtaining investigative leads? That is extremely difficult when a witness um, has, has information um, in a state where they fear reprisals and they feel that there is no trust there between you know, the state and the, those survivors who are willing to provide information. It's absolutely critical. So that environment must exist um, for that to happen. I mean, for example, today in Syria, I mean, it's absolutely not there. I mean, giving information like this, you do so at your own peril. Um, organizations, some organizations, including ours, uh, we have a, a what we call an online inquiry center where those who have information um, regarding these, the existence of a mass grave site can anonymously upload the grid coordinates or location of that site onto our website. Uh, but eventually to find that missing person, you know, it isn't, you know, or to excavate a mass grave site, you know, you are again going back to dealing with the sovereign state that, you know, has custody over that site. So there are ways for witnesses to confidentially provide information, but again, you know, to do so in a complicated political environment like this where there is no trust, you know, completely understand uh, the peril or risk they think they're putting themselves in. 
A question uh, we got in from um, Katharina Becker, who is uh, studying uh, archaeology, looking at Neolithic human remains, but she wants to know what uh, you can do as a forensic anthropologist to help bridge the gap between the principles of excavation and the realities on the ground, and how can we how can the way we examine bodies help to do the best possible jobs in bringing both the truth to light and accommodate the emotional, religious, and cultural needs of the loved ones of those in the grave? And I wanted to note here that when I read the Bournemouth Protocol, I felt there was a particularly heartbreaking little sentence which basically said to forensic anthropologists, don't promise to the families to bring uh, to identify their loved ones at any cost because it's it's something you can't promise and you will kind of uh, work yourself to the bone trying to do that. Uh, that's a very bad uh, way to say it. But um, to basically uh, tell forensic anthropologists and people excavating mass graves, don't promise that you can identify everybody because you can't. And then I realized how much stress forensic anthropologists excavating mass graves must be under with the family. So Catherine, you, this is something that you've worked more closely yeah, we, I mean, I have many colleagues that are forensic anthropologists and archaeologists and many friends that are also forensic archaeologists, and my really heart goes out to them. It is a tough, tough job um, that has to take into account many, many considerations. I mean, working in very uh, difficult environments, often with difficult governments that may not want to engage in the issue properly, um, having the patience to really help them through a process, because it's a long process of conducting these excavations, meeting with the families of the missing, which can be really hard um, in trying to explain the process, but it's critical uh, that these forensic anthropologists and archeologists educate the families about how the process works. So we're often pulling them away from the site and having them come into classrooms or meetings uh, with families who are again, uh, torn apart uh, to try to explain this. But it's critical that they share their knowledge, um, not only with states that are engaged in the process, but with families of the missing. Because if the families cannot understand the process, that it's going to be and cannot play an, you know, an active role, therefore, uh, it's going to be harder for them. So this is really a way to bring them in. So it, it is a complicated process from forensic archaeologists you know, helping to excavate the sites to the anthropologists then carefully exhuming the bodies, documenting this and trying to be very careful not to, uh, to, do, the, to do this in such a way that the bodies are not broken up because in the end, what you want to do is return these mortal remains as respectfully as you can to the families of the missing. So once they are taken out of the mass grave site, you know, properly store them in a mortuary where they can be processed, where samples can be taken for DNA testing. And again, a small window, not no, putting no markings on the bones, making sure at every step of the way that not only are you documenting evidence, but this is somebody's son, this is somebody's mother, brother, and the body will have to be returned. Uh, to them. So it, it's an enormous challenge and an enormous task, um, an enormous amount of pressure that they're under to document and carefully return the bodies, always thinking about the families of the missing. We're going to make this the last question from the audience. Uh, it's from Mariano Machain. He said, uh, Agnes uh, talked earlier about how in Mexico there are many thousands of unidentified bodies. Is it similar, would you say, and yes, in other countries? They ask, uh, what can be done? I, I'm wondering myself with that, is, is this so overwhelming that, we, that it's impossible? Or can we actually change things? What do you think, Agnes? Look, I think, I think my position is that you can keep hammering the principle until you're blue in the face. The current context will not deliver their realisation. We are looking at our humanity is built on mass grave. Our history is built on mass grave. They are the recent one, they are the older one, but the older one are as meaningful to people as the recent one. As an international community, I have explained that in my view, we do not have the proper framework to handle the mass graves as they are as they are defining who we are. As an international community, we have relied on the framework provided by the missing and on the framework provided by investigation to tackle mass grave. I think what I'm trying to suggest is that mass graves are that and much more. 
and the scale of the issue, the number of mass graves around the world, the multiple meanings that mass graves hold, in my view, require that as an international community, both of policymakers, politicians, community leaders, and experts, that we are prepared to go outside our confidence zone and tackle the reality that we are confronting, which is, again, our humanity is built on mass grave and we do not have a framework for mass grave. Point number one. Point number two, what it means is that we need to develop a framework which allows us to tackle both mass grave where they exist and to tackle um, uh, uh, to develop a policy for mass grave which involves the responsibility of the international community. We have example of that here and there, but we do not have a global policy to tackle mass grave. We have a global uh, organization to tackle the missing. We do not have a global organizations or a global policy framework to unpack and to deal with mass grave in their historical and multiple uh, characteristics. And point number three, because of the multitude of mass grave, even in one single country, what I have suggested as a first step is that we uh, determine whether we should create a new institution that would have the trust of various stakeholders and that will act as a legal guardian of the mass grave. While we determine how this mass grave is going to be handled in history, you know, in, 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 in the short term or in the long term, many mass graves may be excavated in 15 years. What are we going to do during those 15 years to ensure that they are protected? So, as a first step, in order not to be overwhelmed by, by the scale of the problem, the first thing is to identify at least where they are, to, to be able to map them out. The second is to develop at national level with international ex, uh, expertise a policy on, you know, five, 10, 20 years for the treatment of those mass graves. And then bit by bit, we can start implementing that. That would be my recommendation for handling the scale of mass grave in a given country, such as Syria, such as Iraq. And my recommendation will be as well to integrate this policy framework, which may be a 10-year policy framework in peace agreement, so that they are resourced, so that there are commitment attached to them, and so that we do not feel overwhelmed, as, as the question um, highlights. Uh, ultimately, the mass graves are who we are. You know, they are about our humanity in multiple ways, in more ways than one, and we need to find ways of preserving them, excavating them if this is required by whatever obligations or rights, and creating memory around them. And on that note, with both uh, the past and also the recommendations for the future, I'm going to kind of close this part of the podcast and go to our asymmetrical haircuts questions. But because we're running so late, we're not going to ask them all. We're just going to go to the good stuff, which is what do you have on your nightstand right now that you're reading or what are you binge watching or what are you listening to for podcasts that you can recommend? And we'll start with Catherine and then go to Agnes. Ah, okay. Ah, well, on quite a number of books, if I ever get a chance to read them. Um, Infinite Just, I don't know if you know that uh no? Okay. It's by, by near my bed here, David Foster Wallace. Also very, very good book, by the way, if anyone wants to read it. Um, also a history of the North Sea, because I'm here in The Hague, so I want to understand more about my environment. And before I go to sleep, just to calm down, always read The Guardian Recipes, because that just takes, takes the world to another place. I like eating. Um, I like cooking. Not, not that I cook well, but uh, that always brings down calms me down. So good recipes at the end of the, at the end of the evening. Thank you. 
Oh wow! Uh, I was just uh, just looking for um, for the title because I'm unfortunately hopeless with um, with title. Uh, but I am reading at the moment several books on artificial intelligence and uh, novels, uh, science science fiction novels on robots. And the Sea of Crust is the one I'm going to recommend because I think. Um, we are going to be extraordinarily challenged as an international community by the meaning of what it means to be human in a couple of decades, if not earlier. And I don't think we have really any response or any even idea of how to deal with a robot that will develop empathy and uh, a moral judgment. So... I haven't found an answer, but that's what I'm looking for. Great. Thank you for a really diverse uh, set of recommendations there. And I think we're also asking you in the chat if uh, you in the audience have any recommendations, anything that you're reading at the moment. We love to hear what what you're reading and we will put those onto our show notes if uh, if we see a list of things there. So finally, just to say thank you to our team behind the scenes, Humanity Hub, also the team who are here in the room with me to organising all of this, to ICMP who helped uh, get this together, Agnes and her colleagues for their help. Uh, I'm Janet Anderson, thanks for joining. I'm Stephanie van der Berg and this has been Asymmetrical Haircuts. Bye everybody. Bye. 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 This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.